All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my bearded buddy. How's that for alliteration? Marty (laughs) Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man? I'm good, Josh. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been practicing my alliteration. That's good. Well, it's it's a it's a worthy thing to do because you know if you don't have that down, then many people would say you shouldn't have passed high school. Mm. So. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, but if, I probably if anyone, shouldn't have passed high school. I don't. <laughs> if anyone could see Josh, they'd be like, "Oh, maybe he is still in high school." Um, this is one hundred percent true. This is one hundred percent true. <laughs> Josh, was it was it really warm by you yesterday? Has it been getting warmer? Also, it's been really nice. Yesterday was kind of a a down day. We kind of had like an overcast day, but it was about seventy degrees Fahrenheit. Um, huh. Yeah, so it was nice, and the day before that was like in the high, like mid to high eighties. So it was hot. Oh, yeah. And today yeah. it's going to be like that again. It was like eighty three yesterday, and I was working outside. We bought the, we got this free pool off Craigslist last year, and with the pool came a deck, like a wooden deck. But it was like we had to disassemble the thing to bring it home, and we didn't put it together last year. And so now we're like out there, like trying to figure out like how all these pieces of lumber go together, and we don't have all the bolts. We <laughs> We lost it with all half the stuff within a year. So like we're out there trying to figure out, and man, it was 83 felt like 103. It was just like so hot because it's the first day it's been in the eighties. And so whenever it's the first day, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is just going to be way, 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 way too much. Um, but you know, Josh, the cool thing about today is we have a podcast episode that's going to be hotter than it was yesterday. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> we, we always work on our transitions, guys, uh, between the banter <laughs> and the guests. Um, We're still learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, we'll but get it out one, one day. <laughs> someday we'll just nail it and we won't even have to point it out. Um, but uh, today's going to be an awesome conversation because we have uh, three really awesome guests. If if I if I'm correct, at least since I've been personally on the podcast, this is the first time that we've had three different guests in three different locations. So like not all sitting in the same room or something like that ever on the podcast. Um, and so the three guests we have today are Keith, Christine, and Ronnie. How's it going, guys? Doing well. Doing good. Doing good as well, man. 
That's going pretty good up here in Canada. <laughs> is it in the 80s in Canada, Christine? Uh, what is the temperature today? I think it's about 26, which is high 70s. Okay. Nice. Pretty high. I was going to say, that's, that's Celsius. Listen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who are not educated in regards to yeah. how everyone else tells temperature except the United States. Yeah, right. And just because you said 26 and you think Canada does not mean it's 26 degrees Fahrenheit and it's just cold because it's Canada. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh. No, not Fahrenheit. Not Fahrenheit. Uh, well, so we have a really awesome conversation today uh, that we really want to get to. Um, but before we get to that conversation, uh, we have a question we ask every guest. So all three of you have to answer. Um, everyone has to give some answer to the question. Um, so the question we have to ask is, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, that's easy. That's easy. I'll go first. All right, all Keith. Right. <laughs> uh, well, number one, I'm not a big ice hockey fan. I don't think I've ever watched a full ice hockey game. Ooh. But – I'm going to go with my home team where I grew up in Los Angeles, and I'm a Kings fan, Wayne Gretzky. Right. He made right. it easy. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> That's a great segue for me because uh, we had him too for a while. So um, where were the the Maple Leafs for sure? Yeah, I've actually never watched ice hockey in my life. <laughs> uh, so I don't think I even know any team. Is it Blackhawks? Is that a team? Yes. Yeah, okay. I, I, like, I like the Blackhawks then. Way to go, Ronnie. Yeah, I knew Ronnie yeah. come through. And I did not set that up in advance, by the way. I did not tell Yeah, that's the, only team, that's the only team I know. I want to know, Ronnie, how much Marty paid you to say Blackhawks, because he's one of the guests <laughs> to like the Blackhawks for so long. <laughs> yeah, he made me sign a non-disclosure on that. <laughs> um, so, Josh, I think I – think the cool thing about this episode today is um, there's there's a bunch of stuff that our three guests do not have in common at all. Uh, they live in different places of the world. Uh, they have different upbringings, as we're going to hear in a minute. Uh, but they do have one thing specifically in common. Uh, and a few weeks ago, we had a conversation with Drew Hart about a similar con uh, topic and conversation. Uh, but our three guests uh, are African-American or actors or black pastors. Um, but so I guess for the three of you, um, you know, each one of you individually, who are you? What do you do? Uh, what's your faith upbringing? Uh, just give us some background about each one of you. How about we start with you, Christine? Okay, cool. Yeah, so I'm Christine Gerber. And um, as background, I am born and raised in the Caribbean, in Trinidad to be specific, a little, actually a little island off Trinidad called Tobago. So it's a very small kind of community, um, predominantly black. And uh, so that's kind of where I grew up. Uh, culturally, very, well, it's all pretty much, it's a, it's a black uh, country, but um, culturally, the people are very hospitable, very communal, that kind of thing. So that's the context in which I grew up. And as far as church background, I grew up initially uh, in Catholicism but later on um, gave my heart to Christ when I came to Canada. So I am in Canada, as opposed to all the rest of you that are in, in, the, in the US, I'm in Canada. But yes, I gave my heart to Christ in, when I came to Canada. And so that really shaped a lot of my story and a lot of um, 
my understanding of uh, racism and all those kinds of things. So we'll get into that later, I'm sure. But yeah, that gives a, a tiny little background of me. Sweet. All right. Who would like to go next, Keith or Ronnie? Sure, I can go. So um, my name is uh, Ronnie Morrell. I'm from Marion, Indiana. Uh, I really grew up in church all my life. I grew up in a, a Pentecostal church, actually, uh, Marion, and I currently work at a uh, United Methodist church. So that's an interesting dynamic that I'll let you, I guess we could talk about or figure out some other time. Um, but yes, Indiana born and raised. I uh, I actually lived up north where Marty is for a little while when I was getting my master's in jazz studies. So I was in the Chicago area for a short stint, but um, most of the time it's been in Indiana. Sweet, right on. Thank you. And Keith. Yes, yes. So um, I live currently in Northeast Ohio, uh, Worcester, is the name of the community I live in. Uh, we've been here since 05, but originally I'm from Los Angeles, California, born and raised in the San Fernando Valley. Um, church of God is my church background upbringing. Uh, we were a very uh, exclusive, uh, very legalistic group. That's uh, my early beginning experiences, but uh, the people were uh, good people. Uh, I, I think it was really their, uh, their heart for holiness that uh, really kept my family together. Uh, both my parents uh, got married early. They were in high school when I came along and, and uh, got married uh, 11th, 12th grade. And the teaching of the church really uh, kept them together. I think it would have been easy for them to throw it away, uh, but they stayed together. Uh, and so I, I grew up in the church, but growing up in the 80s in my community, which was uh, a predominantly black community, I saw uh, the shift take place where gangs and drugs tried to start to come in. Uh, and so that had a, a pretty big impact in what I saw growing up. Uh, but Lived in Dallas, Texas for a little while. My wife and I moved there to help in ministry. And uh, eventually it brought us to Ohio, which my wife is from Akron. So that's how I got to Ohio. And I currently uh, pastor a church that I planted uh, back in 2012 uh, in Worcester. Sweet. Well, thank, uh, thank all of you guys for, uh, again, for being here and also for sharing a little bit about yourselves. And so... Um, basically today, like Marty alluded to, we've had a conversation recently with um, Drew Hart, who's a, a theologian, um, an activist, and Anabaptist, as he likes to say, he coined that term, uh, Anabaptism uh, and Black Theology, put them together, calls himself an Anabaptist, I love it. Um, and so what, what kind of stood out to Marty and I after that conversation is we were really thinking about the importance of story and experience because we can have academic concepts and we can talk about things and those things are true. Um, but until, at least in my experience, I find that until I know somebody, I'm in relationship with somebody, I hear story, I experience something, that kind of changes perspective and, and kind of helps you know, um, bring things to reality. It takes it 
from a head, like a head knowledge and academic knowledge to a heart place, if that makes sense. And so today we want to focus um, on story and just hearing your guys' story. So thank you for, again, uh, for being here. And so Marty, I don't know um, if you want to go ahead and, and we can ask the first question. I've noticed I've been muting you guys if you're not speaking to try to cut back some of the, the um, feedback. But uh, what do you think, Marty? You want to go ahead and pose our first question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, the first question I think we want to ask, um, it's very general. Uh, I think it has, um, it has church, I think, in it in a broad sense, but I think in just in general, it's a very generalized question. Um, and, I, you know, posing this question, I think, from the America slash Canada atmosphere and dynamic, Christine, I think you'll speak into that in a different perspective, I think, than Ryan and Keith will. Uh, but just uh, specifically towards Keith first, um, what is it like to be black in America in 2020? Um, you know, really, that's not a, a question that I think a lot of times I, I think about because, you know, it's just, it's my world. It's just life. Um, there are times where it, I have to stop and think like, wow, you know, I am black. <laughs> you know, this, this happened and maybe this happened because of my race or my ethnicity. Um, so to, to answer the question, what is it like to be black in America? It's, uh, it's, it's living life, you know? Um, and and uh, honestly, uh, situations um, like the, the recent uh, shooting of Ahmaud Arbery um, is one of those reminders uh, that things have uh, progressed in some areas and in, in other places, uh, things are still challenging. Um, I'm a father uh, to four daughters um, and we just live and we do life. Um, and so to say that there's just this awakening awareness of I'm a black man every day, uh, I don't really think like that, you know. Um, there are some things that I, that I, I face uh, in the context that I live in. Uh, I pastor a church that is a predominantly white church. Um, and the challenges that I face in that is uh, it's exhausting at times because you have to um, try to communicate in a way uh, that is connecting and building bridges where if I was just having conversations with uh, another black person or a group of black people, uh, a lot of times we could fin finish our own sentences. Uh, we have a sense of humor or uh, understanding that is uh, without using words at times. And so in my communication uh, and uh, exploring differences, food, music, uh, backgrounds, uh, there, it's just a difference. It, but I, I don't look at it as, um, wow, I, I'm, a, I'm a black man and uh, this is a different type of setting that I'm in. There's Amish buggies that go down my street. I know I'm not from here. You know, there's these, these places that are around. Um, 
but I think the biggest challenge is just trying to communicate uh, and, and be in a place where uh, you don't feel like you have to um, try to come across as you're friendly. You know, that could be exhausting at times. You know, if you're in a grocery store and it came, came up in a conversation with a couple of uh, other black pastors that I'm in relationship with, and we're like, it's exhausting at times when you're in certain spaces uh, because you want to, you have to feel like you have to smile, <laughs> you know, just to come across as I, I'm a friendly black person, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not out to get you. And I never really thought about that. You know, it was just something that uh, I did. And uh, the other black pastor said, hey, this is the reason why I dress up all the time. He said, I don't really, you know, go out. If I don't have my, my tie on, I don't have dress clothes because I don't want to be mistaken as, you know, being a thug or being someone who's trying to start something. And as we process that, we're like, man, that's just exhausting at times. You know, you don't always feel like smiling. You don't always feel like dressing up. And so uh, just to start the conversation off with that piece of it, uh, yeah. I, when the question is asked, I'm like, yeah, sometimes it's just exhausting. Yeah, would anybody else, uh, either Christine or, or Ronnie, like to, to comment on that or, or jump in there? Ronnie, you're muted. Hold on, let me unmute you. There we go. Uh, there we go. Can you, can you hear me? That. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's all good. Um, no, I think uh, being black in America is like kind of piggybacking off of what he said. Is like being comfortable with uh, like code switching. So like what that t t uh, means is not getting to be yourself at all times. So even if I don't feel like smiling, I have to go out and smile because I might be a threat. So like. Um, unfortunately, I feel like people look at black men in America as either a pet, a pet or a threat. So either you're going to like sit down and obey what we're telling you to do, or you're threatening our system. So they only give us these two options. So like for me, for my context, um, I'm a worship, worship pastor at a, uh, like an all white church. When I say all white, it's like me and 399 white people, like literally all white, you know? So, um, the, so I'm always knowing that I am African-American in, in this, in my everyday life, but it's like learning how to like, uh, build these bridges or like make myself not seem like I'm a threat to people. So it's always kind of like on defense all the time. Yeah. Thank you. Christine, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Um, I really appreciate hearing, uh, what you guys have shared, because I think it's a similar thing for me here in Canada. Uh, I am pastoring a predominantly 99.5% white church as well. And um, I don't go around necessarily thinking of myself as a black woman all the time uh, in this context. You're just doing life, you know, and life just goes on. So I don't think about it on a daily basis. However, I, I do find that um, in certain contexts, and especially uh, during a church service, for instance, I am more mindful of how I worship or that kind of thing, because uh, it could be particularly, you know, it could be thought of as, um, as performing or any of those kinds of things or, or, or standing out 
connect to the others. And so, I mean, as a pastor, there's already that, that, um, that sense that you want to, you, you don't want to, um, to in a sense make a spectacle of yourself, so to speak. At the same time, there is a part of your blackness that wants to worship freely and fully. Not that that is uh, uh, completely and entirely uh, a corner on the black, on the, you know, in the black world or anything like that. I think all people everywhere has that have that uh, can have that sense of freedom and, and expression. But um, definitely, as a as a black woman in this context and as a black pastor, I am aware of that. And so just being a little bit more reserved and not fully being yourself in, in some of these contexts. And then again, yeah, sometimes you just want to let your hair down and just be amongst the people. Like we, we have four children as well. And, and uh, one of my sons says to me, mom, I can always tell when your siblings call because you are just totally different. <laughs> And, and so, you know, he doesn't know who's on the other end of the line, but as soon as he hears me talking, he knows the difference when I'm talking to a, one of my siblings or a friend from home versus when I'm talking to someone from here uh, that's part of, you know, a general white community. And so um, I think that there is that you kind of see, really, um, am I able to just be my full self? It's not that in other contexts, you're not really being yourself, but it's a fuller expression of who you are. And, um, and I think that that's one of the things about being in, in the body of Christ is that we are called to have that full expression if we really believe that, that God has, um, has wired us and given us certain things and gifts and, and uh, the color of our skin is, is just the color of our skin, but in that phase, in that, in that um, uh, in that container, God has chosen to put certain certain things in. You know what I mean? Just like you choose a vase and you put this color flowers and this and that and that, and you choose another vase and it may have a different arrangement of things. In the black vase in general, and without being stereotypical, God has put a depth of expression and expressiveness. And, uh, and to feel that you have to hold that back at times I think that's a sad thing for the fullness of the body of Christ, that we don't all get to see the many colors and the many expressions of God in, in full display. You know, it's kind of like an artist kind of going, yeah, I better not color this too bright because, you know, that kind of thing. I really appreciate your answer. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. No, I was just going to comment on uh, our three responses. I, I think it's interesting um, that, we each have um, the similarity that the spaces that we are operating in uh, is predominantly uh, a white space. Um, the reality is not, not all black people that I know of could feel comfortable navigating and operating in just those type of spaces. Um, a lot of this has to do with uh, upbringing experiences, where you grew up, formation, and those type of things. Um, my experience as a, a black man growing up in Southern California in the schools that I attended, um, I, I attended a, a predominantly black uh, school from kindergarten, well, excuse me, first grade to about the fifth grade or fourth grade. And then I was bused to a different school 
um, that was more of a melting pot, uh, but predominantly white. And, and from that point on, I went to schools that were uh, diverse, but majority white schools. That experience of growing up in California in that setting, I think has allowed me to be more comfortable and able to navigate more fluidly in the space that I'm in. And it goes to the way that I think. Uh, but if my experience would have been, if I was raised further in the South, where there might've been some other type of experiences that I may have had, I don't know exactly if I could give the same response of, this is what it's like to be a black man in America because that's a different context. And so I know I don't represent all of black men in how I describe what it's like to be black in the US or in the space that I'm in. And so I just wanted to give that because I've been in places where uh, someone uh, would send me a maybe a video or YouTube video or something with a black person sharing from a certain perspective and ask me, you know, well, what do you think about that as a black person? I'm like, I don't relate to that at all. I don't know who, <laughs> I don't know who this person is, but it's, it sounds as if they're coming from this place that it's not my experience. And so this person does not represent the black culture. And so I, I want to say that I think in a lot of ways, my experience connects well with the black experience and culture, but it's not the same. And I would not be one to just represent all black people, you know, uh, and that's what I think you all brought different guests on to kind of hear that. Yeah, so I, I think that's definitely true, because I think the idea here and, you know, what we're trying to get at is that, you know, Josh is from Maryland and he has different experiences than I do being from the Chicago suburbs. And I've lived in Seattle and I've lived in South Florida and I've lived in Boston and Michigan. And I've lived in all sorts of different places. And every time I've been to living in those different places, each time there have been, there's been a completely different culture, a completely different, um, I, I, I don't want to say expectation, but it's, it's been different everywhere. Um, you know, we had a guest on a few weeks ago uh, who lives in the Seattle area, and he said, this is an extremely liberal, politically speaking, place to live. But then, you know, if you live in other places, that's completely different. And I think that completely shapes a lot of things. And so Josh and I living in different places, we have different upbringings, different culture. I like to tease Josh because he has different turns of phrases than I've ever heard. Uh, like Josh will say, uh, he'll be talking about somebody he knows named Jim and he'll say, Oh, I have this friend called Jim. And I would say, I have this friend, his name is Jim. Uh, and so like, it's different. It's not, it's not any worse or better. It's just different. And we have that different culture and experience. And I, so I think that's kind of what you're talking about, Keith, is that, you know, we have this different idea of what it, I mean, obviously this is within the context of general culture, but I think what you're talking about is, you know, this person has this upbringing in this area, in this context, and it, and that's not my experience. And so that might be what it is to be black for them, but where I'm at and where I grew up and what the experiences I had, that's not the same. Um, and so I guess what I'm getting at in my comment <laughs> is that uh, there is necessarily a difference 
between us in any way other than the fact that we have different experiences that shape who we are within the context of, you know, for me, unfortunately, growing up as a, as a, as a white guy, that gave me a different, like, I didn't, like, you guys all had a similar mindset of saying, like, you know, if I go out to the store, you know, and I don't want to get looked at the wrong way, I have to dress nicely, or I have to smile at people. You know, I don't have to do that. And I, I, I can say I've never had to do that. I've never had to, you know, make sure I smile at someone so they don't think that the next thought of my mind is, I'm going to steal your wallet. Um, I don't have to do that. And I've never had to, and I can guarantee that Josh has never had to either. Um, and so we like that experience is so separate and it's so different from what I'm, from what my upbringing is. And I think to think about that from my perspective, it's like, man, like, I don't want, I don't want people to think that that's what I'm thinking about them with, you know, this all like you get into this circle of thought process. Um, and so that was really interesting to me um, that being in three different places, you all had conversation context of saying, um, I can't truly be who I am feeling I am in this exact moment right now. And Christine, I love the beauty that you brought into that of talking about that in the context of worship. Um, in that, you know, it's the beauty of worship, but at the same, at the, on the same token, the beauty of worship is like one or two steps removed for you when you're in the place where you say, I have to water down how I'm going to act right now. And to me, that, 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 to me, that shouldn't be that way when we're in the presence of God, when we're in the, the worship mindset, we should be who he created us to be, not who others think we ought to be, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So. I also think, you know, just reflecting a little bit on, on some of what Keith shared, um, how our, our, our upbringing and different things create a context for us. But I also think that um, God uniquely positions people uh, for what he wants to do. For instance, I really think that in, in a context, like listening to uh, the rest of you and just that um, as black people, you are pastoring in, in predominantly white situations. I think, and, and Keith rightly drew out the fact that not everyone could do that, but I really see that as, as a bridging and as a gift that, that God is doing something amazing, um, uh, moving us further moving us along the lines of um, understanding. And, and yeah, there are times that, like I said, I do dial things back or whatever, but sometimes that's in wisdom to, to um, help bring people further along as well. And sometimes I step out a little bit, um, knowing that that makes someone uncomfortable um, with the, with the, as an invitation into something greater. And so I think, um, I think, being black right now in Canada and in my context and um, is a gift, you know, I, I think it's a gift. And, and that's been a journey for me because there, there've been a, a period of time in my life as a younger person where, um, and especially now I'm speaking um, from a, a woman's point of view, where everything you see, you know, you talk about white Jesus, but then there is, um, there is uh, white beauty and white everything. And so as a woman, for instance, um, determining my beauty based on what beauty is for, uh, as a white 
person, you know, and, and trying to live into that and being regretful that you're not that and you can never be that. And uh, so those kinds of things. So this has been um, uh, an evolution and a, and, a, and a journey for me to come into the place of going, no, God, this is, this is um, an expression of who God is. All of us are expressions of who God is. And collectively, we get a better picture of God. Collectively, we begin to, to see and know who God is more deeply as we allow each other to be who we are and to embrace each other in that context. So, yeah, so, um, I, yeah, you can't, I think even as a black woman or as a black person, just the same as it would be for a white person, you can't really speak for every white person, you know, right. um, and I can't speak, my context can't speak for every black every black woman uh, because that wouldn't be true like and so one of the things that I've really appreciated uh, as we've been uh, taking Josh and, and Keith and I um, this Jesus Collective course I think it's a reminder that uh, in certain parts of our, our world our countries um, there are blacks that are still incredibly although slavery is abolished still enslaved you know in in their hearts and minds and and I think this the one of the things that I've been really appreciating and, and loving is, is the fact that uh, Jesus identifies with the suffering. We, we know a suffering Jesus and we have laid that aside. And so um, uh, I think a call back to that and to recognize that, yeah, you know, for me in Canada, I'm not walking around every day feeling any sense of um, uh, intimidation by others. You know, I feel quite free, uh, yet there are others in, in our neighborhoods that aren't, you know, some of our young black men, we have a young black friend who, um, who was just beaten by the police a few years back and, um, and had to give up his career as a football player because he was beaten so badly, right? Mm -hmm. So things like that still go on, and yet it's like some of these things are going side by side. Here I am saying that I don't experience that personally and that I feel free, uh, yet there are side by side to me, there are others who that is not their story, you know? And so I think um, listening well and, and opening wider arms to, to hear what others are saying and, and what their reality is, as, um, whether it's black or brown or whoever else, I think it's really important for us to do and not become, think, not think that where I'm at represents the whole. Yeah, that's really good, Christine. Thank you for that. And I, I want to share one thought real quick and, and get your guys' opinion before we move on to the next um, kind of idea. Uh, I was on the phone yesterday uh, with a buddy of mine, um, and he is uh, an immigrant. He moved to the U.S. when he was, I think, like seven or eight. Um, he's full legal citizen now. He's from Jamaica. Um, <clears throat> this is a black guy. And he is engaged uh, to a white woman from Carroll County, <laughs> which Carroll County in Maryland, people who know Maryland know what Carroll County is. Um, but he was telling me, because so they have two kids, two young kids. Um, he was telling me, like expressing frustration yesterday. He was like, dude, like, I know the experience that I've had growing up. He grew up in the inner city. Um, you know, all sorts of, of, of um, problems he faced, but he was basically 
lamenting that his two kids, when they're old enough to go out, as he was saying, um, they're not going to be looked at as white kids. <laughs> they're going to be looked at as black kids. And so he was saying, I'm going to have to have the same conversation with my boys that my parents had with me when I was old enough to leave the house, when I wanted to go play basketball with my friends or whatever. Um, and he was like lamenting this, like there was a lot of anger and frustration in his voice. Like I'm with a white woman and yet my, my kids are still going to be looked at as black period. And so I just, does that relate at all with anybody? Can um, I'm just interested in, in, in hearing your thoughts. Uh, yeah, so I'm actually, I'm married to a white woman. We've been married for three years now. We have a, a daughter actually. And, um, and she's like more of my skin color, you know? So, so as, as she's getting older, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, um, I'm going to have to give her the same, like sit down. Like most black people in America have had that sit down with their parents. Like, you know, be careful. Uh, you know, no, you can't just don't be walking. Like watch how you talk to people. Look, you know what I mean? And me, I remember my grandpa was older. He's even 70, 78. He would say, uh, you know, everywhere you go, you know, make sure that you are um, dressed to the T, you know what I mean? Cause like you, you always have to have this perception that you are worthy of like a human, you know, <laughs> which is the weirdest thing to say out loud. So like when this trend came out right now, like, and I dress like the two where like the holes in the jeans and like all that kind of the rip stuff. And he would be so offended that I would actually go outside like that because he said, you know, as a black man for me, I didn't have that opportunity. I had to be like completely clean or people would think I was, you know, worthless. So like, uh, I, obviously my, my daughter's only 11 months, so I'm not telling her this stuff yet. But um, in my mind, it's like constantly brewing. Like, man, she looks like a black black woman, you know. Um, so it's just I have to constantly process about what I'm gonna say to her when it when that time comes. And I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable, but I, uncomfortable, but I think it's a conversation that we unfortunately still have to have with um, our kids. Yeah, thank you. Um, anyone else like to speak to that? Yeah, um, you you know, I was thinking about that. Growing up, I, you know, I lived in a, a black community and I didn't really have a lot of the conversations about, you know, police or brutality or being poor. I mean, you know, number one, I wasn't driving, you know, <laughs> at that time. And, and so a lot of what I was warned against was getting involved in gangs. That was like the big thing uh, for me growing up um, to be able to know what what crowd to hang out with. And um, that was really the fear is if you hang out with the wrong crowd, then you could put your life in jeopardy. So it wasn't just me being a black man will put my life in jeopardy. It was if you hang out with the wrong crowd, that's the main thing that I remember hearing coming up. And so uh, I have four daughters and um, the world looks at women differently than they look at men, especially when it comes to race. You know, like uh, Ronnie said, um, it's all right, I'll call you Ronnie. I know Ronald's on here, right? Okay, Ron, Ron, Ronnie, Ronnie said that, you know, you get, you're either a pet or a threat. Uh, my daughters don't really come across as a threat. You know, uh, that's, that's not 
uh, the image that they portray. Uh, but I do still have to talk to them about uh, making sure I'm putting into them uh, the character and the virtue that they know who they are as women of color, uh, that they could fill any space, any room, there's no limit, there's no, that, that's what I, I put into them, more of a, a positive of who they are and understand that there are gonna be some people who aren't going to respect and treat you that way. But if you know who you are, you could just ignore whatever it is that's negative out there. Let's put the emphasis in the positive. And, and that's kind of how uh, I've raised my girls. But of course, you still have to have the talk. You know, uh, if you get pulled over, you know, once they got to driving age, my oldest is 21 now. And so uh, I have three uh, who are done with high school. And so I had to have the conversation once they started driving and I was like, wow, I didn't realize this. Yeah, you have to be respectful, overly respectful. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Here, here are my hands. I'm moving to my glove department. You know, uh, all of those type of conversations. Uh, call me. If you get pulled over, get on your phone and call me have me on the line also uh these are conversations that i've had to have with them uh but again i wonder if i would have had sons if if i would have had a different feeling with that i'm not sure I, i'm sure i probably would have and i guess also from my uh from my context i'm so if i don't know if anybody's ever been to indiana but indiana's definitely like a, a good old boy state. Um, and I'm from Marion, Indiana, which if you look up the history, Marion is like the last uh, city in the United States that had a legal lynching, which is like not that long ago, you know. <laughs> so if you like, you Google it when you get a chance. If you're listening, Google it right now, you'll see. Um, so like things around here are like uh, still super high tension for all these kind of things all the time. So um it's like when I'm speaking about this kind of stuff, it's really, uh, it's really unique because I remember when I lived up where Marty is, I didn't think about it like this. The people, it's more people, you know what I mean? It felt like it was more of a, like a melting pot situation. But then you come back to like small town Indiana, it's like, you know, uh, like every two blocks you see like a big 20 foot Trump pin sign, you know what I mean? Or people driving around with uh, Confederate flags on the back of their pickup trucks, like all day, you know what I'm saying? So, so this stuff is like, it's like, it's like, it's like in in the system of what this small town Indiana is. I'm curious, Ron, what it's like being married to a white woman in that context. Oh, so right. you, oh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So you go to like like local restaurants around here, and it's like it's almost like the music stops or something when you walk in, you know, <laughs> like 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 things are just going, and then you walk in, and people just kind of, kind of look at you, and it's like you know, it really. And it's like a shock, you know. I, I try to think like a movie scene where you imagine like the DJ is playing a song, and then suddenly somebody walks in on the disc scratch. That's what it, that's what it's like when you go into like restaurants. You know what I mean? So like when you get like more towards like Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, it doesn't feel like that. But all those other spaces in between, like it's really tense like that. So that's another thing that I'm talking with, uh, you know, my wife about like how for our daughter is like is small town Indiana really a safe space for an interracial family? 
we, um, I'm also married to a white man and we have four children. And um, it's really been an interesting journey for us as a family and for our kids. Just, uh, it's kind of like, as soon as there's a little bit of brown in your skin, you're considered black, right? And yet in, in our context, um, my mom was also mixed and her parents were mixed because of slave owners, that kind of thing, right? And so, uh, so there's actually a fair bit of white on my side of the family. But um, it's been an interesting challenge for me in teaching our children uh, along the, the journey about loving themselves as, as black people and also not, um, not negating uh, their white heritage, right? And so that's been an, an, an interesting straddle for, for our kids. And, um, you know, we've had, uh, even though here in Canada, things are a lot more undercover as far as uh, racism and that kind of thing, it's still a very real thing. And uh, I know as our kids were um, of driving age and doing the driving and stuff, um, you know, they would get pulled over, especially my one son, um, because our kids are all different shades. And we have one son who's particularly dark, so he's more my complexion and the rest are a little bit lighter. And uh, he would be the one. He would be the one that was pulled over all the time, right? And uh, so much so that uh, in the end, and we had a young man living with us at one point who was a little bit darker than me and he was pulled over all the time, all the time. And, and um, he loved cars and um, would always be happy, you know, driving these souped up cars. And so in the end, he just said, you know what, I can't drive these cars anymore because as soon as he showed up in a car that was all souped up, it was assumed that he had a stolen or did something or whatever, you know? And um, so these are real things, these are real things. And, uh, and, and it's interesting to, to try and find that balance when you are a mixed family uh, to help your kids in that in that context i know i should probably share it with you guys once already um and this happened to us in the states where i was um i, I sing I, I was trained as a singer and uh attended i was invited to um to sing to do a concert uh in valdosta and uh weeks before they found out that i was black and so they canceled the concert and then they were talked into it by the person who was the initiator of getting me there and who was a white man, but he knew me from Canada. He had come to Canada and had worked at our church for a while. And um, so anyway, uh, they went through a whole big thing and uh, they decided, okay, they'll, they'll go ahead with the concert. So they reinstated the concert. But then um, as we planned as a family to come down um, and make it sort of a family vacation, then they found out that I was married to a white man and that was it. That was the end of the story. It was like, you know, and that's when I really, it, it struck me then, I was like, well, what is the big deal? But it struck me then the whole idea of white supremacy and, and how uh, for them it was unthinkable that someone so beneath them would have one of their kind. You know, that was the unthinkable kind of thing. And so that really makes you, realize that you know yes i'm living one reality here in canada but just step over a little bit and i would be living a completely different reality you know so yeah 
one one of the things that um we we've experienced where we live uh again um there is a a, a big amish um, community in our neighborhood around us in our county and um our our family met a a family uh a white family that used to be amish they they, they came out of amish and we connected at an event and we're like, you know, they had kids around our age, our kids' age. So we're like, hey, we're going to get together. They invited us to their house. And we're like, wow, this is going to be pretty cool. We're going to have a, a cookout, <laughs> you know. And um, we're at their house, and um, we're inside conversating. And their kids don't feel comfortable. I could tell their kids didn't quite feel comfortable with mom and dad's house guests. And uh they would hide in rooms and kind of peek around walls to look and then dart back into the room um and i thought oh you know kids are squirrely you know uh strangers in the house but then you know one of the kids came out like mom dad they're black they're black and they're like yes we know they're black you know and like come on out and then they apologized to us we're so sorry. We're so sorry. We, we've never had colored people uh, in our home. And, and I'm sitting here like, I don't think I've ever been called a colored person. You know, growing up in Southern California, it's just like there are things that you just knew. And, and so what we started to discover in some of the places in our area is that there was just a lot of ignorance. and trying to teach our kids that you're going to run into a lot of people who are just ignorant. You're probably the first black friend that any of these people have ever had. Your home is probably the first black home that any of your friends have ever visited. And you are kind of introducing them to a real black person. You know, not what they see on television, not what they hear in the news, but you are in an given an opportunity to introduce them. This is a black person. And what we started finding out is that people in this area, some of the people in this area uh, were like marveling at our family. Almost like, wow, the mom and dad are together. Wow, the kids are so well behaved. Wow, and it's, and it's really because there was this ideal of uh, what a black family looked like, what black children looked like that a lot of people actually have. And our girls just like, hey, we're gonna shatter all of that. You know, We're gonna be top of our class. Uh, my daughter who is graduating this year is valid, uh, Victorian and um, the first black in her school to, you know, to graduate on that in that level and so um looking at that that's that's some of the things that we feel like our family actually did in some of the community and space that we're in is introduced people to the black family in some and, and in some ways changed their narrative of what the black family looks like mm. so that's that's a part of raising our kids in this type of area Yeah, thank you, Keith. Oh, Christine, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that that's super cool, Keith. Um, I think that's that's so so needed, you know, to have uh, models that help uh, change our socialization and our, and our thoughts um, and help our kids in particular because they have the opportunity to take this further, right? Uh, not just your kids, but I'm thinking the kids of the community, the white yeah. kids, like they can see that these are safe people. And that doesn't negate that, you know, the, the a black person is going to come along and do something stupid, but then yeah. they can, they can understand that this is um, a person and character situation, not a race situation, you know? And also too, I think, um, I think for like, um, I can't remember which of you was saying about your Jamaican, oh, um, Josh, you were saying about your Jamaican friend, right? Um, I was thinking back when you mentioned him in Canada here, um, not so much right now, but a few years back, um, to be Jamaican was like, as soon as you heard that there was a crime, you just thought the first thing was, was he a black Jamaican? And, you know, and it's so stereotypical, but um, some of it was true in the sense that um, because of the way things are set up systemically, um, people get into places where, where violence and crime seem like their only options. Do you know what I mean? Where, where poverty and, and different things like this. And so then, and so then people um, are categorized and all of that, but no one is looking at the root causes. You know, and so um, I think even in, in situations like this to recognize, to help our children and our communities recognize that it's not because that guy is black or this community, it's, it's because of the systemic ills that's been done, why these people are frustrated and, and whatever else is going on, but it really is not their skin color that's determined. So it's not that you see a black person and, and that's what they're about, you know. Think about what it is that's happening systemically, and um, I think that that's really, really important. Then you know, when you have models like your family, that then can help change a narrative, but not just change a narrative. Help people to actually go to the root, because what they're seeing now is they're going from a "that's what all black people are" to going, "Wait a minute, if this family is like that and that family is different, what is?" what is causing the difference and it's taking them now to the root causes where they can you know be wise so i really appreciated that that is so good christine i, I think that's spot on it's, it's like if you would have placed any person regardless of their skin color in that type of situation and system of generations of being placed in that uh, you know, how would they turn out? What would be some of the things that they would deal with and struggle with? And so it's not necessarily just the skin color that produced that. I love that. That is excellent. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a, a hip hop artist that I like called Derek Minor. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of him before, but he has a song. Uh, he has an album he put out called God Bless the Trap. And one of the songs on there is called It Is What It Is. And he talks about that exact idea, Christine. Um, it's a very powerful song. Uh, I used it recently. We've been, because of like these kind of conversations I've been engaging in because of the stuff from Jesus Collective, like 
I've been wrecked for the past like three weeks. <laughs> Ever since I got on that freaking Zoom call with Keith, it's your fault, Keith, which is good. Um, I've been wrecked. <laughs> but I, I, I shared that song with my students and like they, people were in tears because my, like where I grew up is different. Like Carroll County, like the whole, Ronnie, what you were saying about like big Trump signs and Confederate flags, normal. Like that, that's what it was. Like I played soccer growing up and we had the token black kid on our team. Uh, he was the striker. He was our goal scorer. We were playing a game and the coach from the other team, the coach from the other team called him the N-word. And the official, the ref was right there and he heard it. And I asked the official, I said, you heard what he said. Are you going to do anything about it? He said, no, that's not my problem. And then there was like a scrap on the, on the bench because then the kids started doing it too. So like, that's, that's my context. The students that I'm with you now. You started the fight, by the way, Josh. I just want to make sure everyone knows that story. <laughs> Is Josh stood up and started the fight. He wasn't going to, ha- he wasn't going to stand for it. So I just want to make that Marty- Marty's making fun of me because he knows that I have a strong ethic of nonviolence. No, 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 no. It's okay. But I know that you started it because you told me that before. I did. I did. I did. But uh, then my students now in Montgomery County in, in specifically where I'm at in Gaithersburg, it's one of the most diverse cities in the country. Like it's in the top three, three to five. And so I have students from various backgrounds and racism is still a thing, but they don't see it that way. They have to, the, Showing them the, the racial hierarchy, the systems of oppression, as Christine, you were saying, introducing them to that after I was introduced to that was heartbreaking because they don't see the kind of story that I shared about my you know, experience. So I don't know. It, mm. those, that's, it's crazy to me. But. I just want to add something real quick, Josh, before we go to the next question. Because, um, Josh, you kind of shared a little bit about like your personal upbringing and like kind of what you'd been been around um you know for me I remember being in high school so similar to some of you guys I mean my my high school and middle school upbringing uh was extremely diverse the area that I live in um is a is a large melting pot of everything from Hispanic to Asian to black to even smaller minorities from different places of the world you know European I mean it was everything I mean there wasn't there wasn't just a predominant, I mean, if you looked at the, my, my graduating class was 800. If you looked at our graduating class, it probably would have been closer to equal across the board than anything predominantly one thing or the other. Um, but I remember sitting in math class my senior year and a white friend was talking to this other black guy and he was talking to him and asking him, um, are you good at this sport? And he was like, no, I'm not. And he, Are you good at this sport. No, I'm not. Are you good at like, and trying to find out like what he was good at. And I noticed that he wasn't asking like, you know, are you a good violin player? <laughs> are you, are you a good flute player? He was asking things like, are you a good basketball player? Are you a good football player? Are you a good drummer? Are you like, and, and he was saying no to all these things because he didn't do those things. That wasn't who he was. And then the last sentence that he said, everybody in the classroom, every color, every person man or woman turned and looked at him with this terrible look uh like dude you don't say that kind of thing and he said well if you aren't good at any of those things are you even black and everybody in the room looked like what are you doing you can't say that kind of thing and he was just laughing like it didn't even strike it to him 
that that was like not only were the questions he was asking racist but like then like saying that last statement just solidified that sort of like Keith what you were talking about there was just a general ignorance on his part of you know like this person that this person didn't have to look the same like you know we grew up in the I grew up in the time of Michael Jordan so this person wasn't a good basketball player so he didn't look like Michael Jordan you know this person wasn't a good football or or football player so he wasn't Bo Jackson like he didn't he didn't know what to do with this person that didn't look like the quote-unquote popular black person and everybody in the classroom was just totally appalled that this person had that and I and I think that that kind of speaks to this overall ignorance it speaks to this overall this differing experience from every different area that we all are coming at this concept of racism and this understanding of what it means to be black what it means to be white and like how to not see it as you know well if you're white you have to be this you know if you're black you have to be this you know there was i mean i remember josh can probably speak to this you guys may have had this experience you know there was the stigma when i was a kid that if you were good at math you were probably an asian and that's not true either because there's plenty of every race that is good <laughs> is good at math and so like the like there's just these stigmas that i think we create in our society um and unfortunately those tend to manifest themselves from the white out i think more often than not and so i think keith like like with what christine was saying it's so great what you're doing with your family is you know you're breaking those barriers but not in the uh see i told you so kind of a way but in the you know this is who we are we are people and we are capable just as much as anybody else you know this the color of our skin doesn't actually make us more capable or less capable of doing that you know we can be exactly who god created us to be and uh, that, like Christine was saying, that's, that's beautiful to me um, to begin breaking those barriers down. It's wonderful. The, the thing about that, uh, Marty, is I want, you know, I always want to be careful. You know, we, we can't see our blind side, you know. Um, and, and I know that I have them. I know I do. And I don't know how much of my drive to excel and for excellence um, how much of that is coming from, oh, I'm just an Enneagram three, you know, I'm just, that's, that's who I am. Yeah. Or how much of that is coming from some wounding places of, you know, as a black man, I always had to do that much more mm. in order to be on a level field in the spaces that I've been in, you know, so, you know, it wasn't good enough, you know, to just, you know, turn in. Uh, a project uh, that followed, you know, everything that was expected, you know, on the syllabus, you know, it wasn't good enough, you know, you have to go further to do that much more, you know, if, if I needed a, a bachelor's degree to, nope, I need to go and get my master's now, yeah. you know, I, I need to be the top of my class, that drive that I've always had, you know, is that because of my personality or my wounding? And then raising my kids, it's like, you know, I was like, hey, you know, take the Enneagram test. And most of my kids came back as threes. And I'm like, okay, I know all four of my daughters are not threes on the Enneagram, which is the need to succeed. And, uh, you know, but I look at them, all of them, straight A's, 
you know, everything they got involved in, they excelled in it. And I'm like, okay, is this coming out of wounding? Is this, because if it is, you're going to come to a point where it's, you're just going to burn out. You're, that, that drives you. And that could become so unhealthy um, that I, I'm trying to look at myself. It's like, you know, how do I feel? Can I fail and be comfortable with who I am? Do I always need to succeed? You know, I, I don't want to be trapped in that. And again, that's the Enneagram doesn't really put you in a box. It reveals the box that you're already in and shows you how to get out of it. And so I'm, I'm having these type of um, conversations with myself and people in my space that I'm in uh, because I don't want to pass all of that on to my kids, you know, yeah. uh, because it is exhausting after a while. Yeah, thank you, Keith. Um, so I want to push the the conversation um, in a ah, goodness a specific direction because uh, I know we're we're kind of having a, an extended conversation here, which I think is good and important. But um, I think a lot of the times we have this idea that okay, all this stuff that we just talked about—racism, systematic oppression. That happens outside of the church, but pff, that doesn't happen in the church. Are you kidding me? Come on. Like we're, we're all, people say we're all colorblind in the church, which is a <laughs> terrible thing to say. We talked about that with Drew, but like, that's the real thing. And so all three of you are pastors um, in predominantly white churches. And so I wanted to talk about that. So Ronnie, I want to throw that uh, your way. You talked about you're in a United Methodist church where there's 399 white people and yourself. So what, what, how's that experience been as a, a, a black man in a predominantly white church? Um, it's just constant uh, navigation. Um, so I grew up in a predominantly African-American church. And then I, when I accepted this job at this predominantly um, white church, I just know that I just learned quickly that how I ministered had to be different. Um, like, because the same, like, they it don't, it doesn't relate. Like, I can't talk about uh some of the songs that we, some of the songs that we sang growing up about like struggle and stuff like that just didn't relate to this this group of people because they don't relate to that same kind of struggle as the way that a predominantly African American church uh, uh was. So I just realized quickly that okay, that um, I mean, you it manifests itself in the songwriting. So I mean, you see uh, most of the songs that are come out of like the more CCM type background are all about how, you know, how great God is. I mean, for one of the, one of the most famous ones, Chris Thomas, how, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it is now. Um, but the, uh, How Great Is Our God. Uh, and then you check out some of the same songs that African-American artists were writing at the same time was a completely different experience. So um, just like the whole idea of how somebody, I mean, in the city of Marion is only probably 10 miles long, how somebody, uh, only a few miles apart can be experiencing such different things based off of like, I mean, from from the color of their skin. So I just, um, it's a constant navigation of just trying to learn how to um, uh, reach multiple people um, with the woman, I mean, obviously with the most important message still at the center of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also being able to be insensitive to the cultural experience of everyone. So, I mean, it's, for me, it's still, because I've been at this job now for three years, so it's still a constant um, learning experience um, and how to be able to uh, navigate that space. And it's it's, a, it's tough, but um, I definitely believe it's a calling that um, 
God has put on my life. Yeah, thank you. Would um, Christine or Keith, would you like to, to comment at all? Yeah, I would say um, navigating that kind of space is, is, is definitely can be a growing experience. I think even for me as a, as a, as a black pastor, um, one of the things that I have struggled with, and again, you know, I think some of these things like Keith was talking about earlier, um, you know, it's his drive to succeed, partly, um, you know, a, a, in a sense, proving of yourself, or is it fully just your, your personality and you'd have done that if you were in a white skin kind of thing, right? Um, I think one of the things that I have, and I bring that up just to say sort of psychologically, if you, if you will, questioned and struggled with a little bit. I'm in a context where theology is, 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 a, is a big thing. And, um, and good sound theology is a big thing. And, and I love it. I, I totally love it. Um, but intellectualism is also kind of, you know, kind of up there a little bit, right? And, uh, and the balance of, of understanding um, the, the number of different intelligences that there's not only intellectual kind of intelligence, but uh, not that there's a lack of understanding of that, but in the practical reality, like I think there's a lot of things that we, we know to be true, but functionally how we play that out is it can be different. And so, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the marrying, if you will, of the intellect and theology with um, a full, um, emotional intelligence and freedom, I find to be one of the, one of the, the dynamics that, that I struggle with a little bit in my context, knowing and appreciating and thinking that the greater my theology, the greater my expression of self should be because that to me is a theological issue, is <laughs> a theolo theology, uh, theological uh, living out of what I've just been filling myself with kind of thing, right? It's like, oh my gosh, this is the God, this is the cruciform God, then I should be completely at peace and completely knowing who I am and completely able to celebrate that in, in, in our context, not just me, but anybody else to walk in and see that there is room for them, not just be told that there's room for them, but see and feel that expression that, that there is room. And so, um, so yeah, I, I think I think as as a church, you know, the greater church, I think that there's we're on that journey, we're on that journey of becoming, and I, I'm thankful that we're continuing to become and to to evolve. And I think that um, you know people like myself, people like Keith, Ronnie, and others, that we can be part of that bridge. Um, you know, that, that people can move back and forth in, in greater understanding. Um, what you brought up earlier, Marty, that, uh, you know, expecting that every black man is going to be a sports person. Um, the, the other side of that is, is recognizing that um, as you see a black man, you, you immediately think that the only thing he has to offer that he could possibly have to offer is to be an athlete. You don't think, oh, he could be the doctor next door. 
yeah. you know, he could be the engineer that's uh, whatever, you know, he could be the CEO of this company or whatever it might be. We immediately make assumptions and categorize. And, um, and I think the same has happened within the church context where we assume that if, if the person's black, they're emotional and they're going to have a breakdown and they're going to just worship like there's no tomorrow, but not because something real is happening, but only because it's based on a, a frivolous emotional thing. And we don't understand and take time to, to, to just dig into what these things mean. And I think in the church context, these are some of the things that we need to wrestle with and find space for understanding the psyche of people, understanding um, what, what God has done even in, in different races. What, 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 is, what is the expression of God in, in the black race? What is the expression yeah. of God in this group of people, in that group of people, and, and so that we can celebrate together? So that's, that's kind of, um, for me, being predominantly in a white church, I would love to see not just a greater diversity as far as skin color types and all that kind of stuff, but an embracing an embracing and a fuller expression um, of, of the body of Christ, of what it means to be the body of Christ. And uh, yeah, just not that categorizing and assumptive kind of way that we tend to go about, but really, really there being room, really true hospitable space. Yeah. So that's kind of that's where I'm at, I think. Yeah, um, great question. Um, my wife and I, we've been married 22 years uh, this year. And um, looking back over our marriage, um, I look at year number seven. <laughs> you know, and I always heard people talk about that seven-year itch and how things get a little testy and the cycles of that. Um, in year number seven, we had to make a decision in our relationship uh, if we were going to have seven more years of marriage, uh, at year number seven, things had to go deeper. Uh, we had to become more vulnerable. Uh, we had to become more transparent and uh, allow our intimacy to grow because we, you know, we couldn't stay on the same level and go to the next level. You know, um, and I, I look at that, that, that was challenging. It was, uh, on my part, I feel like especially. You know, it's like, all right, I'm gonna let you see inside of me. You know, if I show you this, you can hurt me. You can, you can destroy me. But I realize if I don't trust you with this, we're not gonna grow deeper. Um, I, I feel like that's a part of what it's been for us in pastoring our church, which is a predominantly white church. You know, we planted our church. We didn't plant our church with the intent of being a predominantly white church, you know. We're like, hey, God is moving here, whoever feels called to be a part of this. And so it just happened to be majority of white people. We aren't the only black people in our city. So I'll let you know that, you know, and our family isn't the only black family in my church. You know, there now there's not a whole lot. <laughs> I could count them on a hand. Um, but the people who came to my church, they didn't come to my church with a sense of I don't like black people. They didn't come to my church with a sense of, I'm a racist. Um, they came to our church because they're like, hey, God is doing something. We love the culture here. We love you, know, you all as the pastors. Uh, but 
as we start to grow together now as a community, you know, uh, how deep do you go? How deep do you go? If we are going to go to that next level of intimacy as a community, there's a level of awareness that has to take place of this is who I am as a black man. This is how this affects me. When things happen in uh, our, our culture and society, this is how this impacts me as a black man. And I realized that there were some people that did not feel comfortable with a deeper level of vulnerability coming from me as a black man. It made, it, it, I believe it, for some people, it uncovered some things in them. And there have been some that have processed it with us. And because of that, I feel like our relationships have gotten deeper. Mm. There are other people that feel like this is just uncomfortable. And if it's uncomfortable, that must mean something's wrong. And so they've left. And, and so I, I really believe that it really opens up a space where you can go deeper, but not everyone is going to want to go there with you. Um, and I, I know a conversation I had, you know, with someone, they said, you know, I didn't realize you thought like that. You know, I, I guess I just assumed you thought like me. And now I'm realizing, and they, they're trying to put into words, you think like a black person, you know, or like, like those black people, you know, and, and, they, and, and the, the heart was good and we're dialoguing and we're growing closer, but we're having conversations that could be painful. And I had to be willing to go there on that next level of vulnerability to have these conversations that could be painful for me personally as making myself vulnerable in that because you could be rejected in those places, you know? And so uh, that's what I have found in this space of pastoring in this type of context. Uh, how willing am I to go deep with relationships and bearing my soul in that? Yeah. Thank, thank you guys so much um, for sharing those things. I want to make a brief comment real quick. And then um, I know Marty has, one last question. I know we've been kind of going long, so thank you guys for your time. But uh, I, Christine, you were talking about the theology thing, and that is that is one of the biggest things um, that I've been struggling with recently. Is and I've I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but this bookshelf behind me has all these books on it. And one day I remember standing here looking at it and realizing these are all books written by white educated men. The people that have shaped my faith are white educated men. And I was told that James Cone, you can't read him. He's a heretic. I was told black theology, liberation theology, they're all heretical practices. Don't, don't read those things. Don't look at that. And what I realized was at the time, I was like, oh, okay, these, you know, these people um, that are telling me this stuff, they're just you know, looking out so I don't go on a slippery slope or something. But then now looking back at that, the people who say those things, their theology is shaped by white educated men. So like the standard that that's like this idea we talked about with Drew of socialization, the white, like racism as a social hierarchy and, and whiteness is the ideal and everything is fed through that lens. And so like now I'm like, you know what? I want to read all the people that you tell me are heretical. 
I want to go read them partly because I'm a hard ass and I like being stubborn and doing what people tell me not to, but also God has gotten bigger through these experiences. I realize they're the, the, the voice of the people of God, the body of Christ has been cut short when you only limit it to one person, especially when it's just white educated males, people that look like me, like there are other voices that need to be heard. Like we're not seeing the full image of God represented uh, on that Jesus call collective call the other day when, when Reese sky said that like the church <laughs> can't fully exemplify the kingdom of God when it's all one cultural group, like all of this stuff is breaking my world. So that's just something that, that I've been wrestling with. Um, so thank you for, for pointing that out, Christine. And, uh, uh, can I just say something before you move on, if, if that's okay, just really quickly. Um, I wanted to mention that as you speak of theology, um, there's another aspect. And for me, that is that as a black person, I have noticed even in my um, seminary days that um, black theologians are ones that I had to internally sort of intentionally embrace in the sense that um, I didn't naturally just trust black theology or a black theologian um, because I had been whitenized as well. <laughs> I just made up my own word there, but uh, to, to, to believe that theology, that the only trustworthy theologians were white males. And so, um, so even as some, as a black theologian would be introduced, I would actually go through some of the same things that you would uh, and in, in the sense of, can I trust this person? Can I trust this? And so there is um, a, a, a resurgence and a, a raising up of trust, I think, within the, even within the Black community, the Black Christian community for their own to believe that God has gifted us. Like, shame on me for being that way. But but it's, it's in a sense the way I've been socialized and culturized within the church, right? To not trust my own, to not trust that, that anyone, um, that the black person can have that level of understanding of, of, ex, of experience with God that is not just emotional, but that is truly solid theology, you know, that I, that I can and should embrace. So, so I too, as a black woman have been formed and shaped by white theologians to a great degree. So I just want to put that out there that it's not just you. And so this is, this is a tension and, and something that I want to as well um, fix change, you know? So just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I guess one more thing on that, uh, that, that like hierarchy type thing that happens and the space that I really spend most of my time in is worship music. It happens in the music as well. I mean, you can see it has happening actively. The song uh, Waymaker that everybody's singing right now, like it's all of a sudden this big hit. Kate, like I think Sinatra, the Nigerian woman, wrote it in, I mean, I know she wrote it, but I think she wrote it in 2015 or 16, and it made a wave all the way around the world. And then all of a sudden when a, a popular um, white male group, I think Leland was the name, um, recorded it now, like all of a sudden this national anthem. That you know what I'm saying, but this song has been this great the whole time. So why did it take um, a popular white male group to re-record this song for it to 
really penetrate the church and it, and it keeps cycling over and over again. So it's this kind of hierarchy where people, a person of color and even more specifically a black woman did something, wrote a song that really was a, is a national, is an international anthem, but it didn't get to be considered that until it was re-recorded by a white artist. You can see that same thing with like songs like CCLI and all the things that push uh, that machine of white male front artists above everything else. Well, and Ronnie, I, I can tell you that that's not necessarily, I mean, that song specifically, yes, but you see, there's a, white people will cover another white person's song just to try and get some glory out of it. So <laughs> that happens a lot anyhow, uh, because right after that, uh, there was another person that like, like after Leland did that, there was yet again, another person that, that went out and said, oh, you know, I think I'm going to, I think it's Michael W. Smith decided he was going to record a version of Waymaker and his is like even worse like it's like the worst version like it, it it wasn't even needed but no all of those things are so good because you know i mean everything you guys have been saying in the last couple of minutes i've just i've wanted to just listen and soak up uh like keith you're talking about relationship and you're talking about you know to me that is so much the key of faith in many ways is we want to be in relationship with god it, it can't just be uh you know, he, like we, he can't be, you know, the, the soda machine God, you know, or the vending machine or, you know, the genie in a bottle that we only call on when we need him uh, or we ask him for provision. And so God bless me, please. I haven't had enough money to buy the things I want to buy. So, and so like we, we want to be in relationship with God, but I think God calls us to be in relationship with everybody around us too. And so I think that's one of the keys that we can, utilize to bring us all closer together is through relationship the story you told Keith of being over at the people's house um, that was something that Drew had mentioned uh, and, and when, when we had the episode with him of you know if as a family you're going to say everybody is equal but then you never have a person of color over to your house ever or when you drive through a neighborhood that might seem different you close you roll up the windows and lock the doors that communicates to your family something different than what you told them when you say everyone's equal. Um, and so I think to, to really bridge that gap means relationship. It means going for a relationship. It means seeking that relationship. Um, so all of that's been really good. And the theologian thing, that's something that Josh alluded to me and I hadn't even noticed. I started looking through all my books and I realized a lot of my books are the same. Uh, and my seminary education, um, you know, there were some, some African books that I read when I, cause I was doing some things with worship. And so there was a really great ethnodoxology, the book that I read that kind of talked about worship in the context of every culture and what that looks like. Um, but even still, that was sort of like one book out of the many that I had to read and get. And so it's one of those things that you start to notice and you start to realize that socialization. Um, but the last question I know, cause I know we've gone longer than we may have told you guys, um, but this has been an amazing conversation and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, we've kind of talked about uh, culture. We've talked about faith and religion. Um, the one other question that we wanted to ask that we didn't tell you guys is kind of a little bit of a surprise class slash secret question. Um, recently in the news, um, there was a quote that was, um, or there was a, a, a phrase that was said by a presidential candidate 
Um, and he was on a radio show uh, with Charlemagne the God, uh, which is a, he's a black man. And the listenership of that show, although it's nationally syndicated, is predominantly black. Um, and uh, Joe Biden said, if you're deciding between me or Trump, then you ain't black. And uh, a lot of that, there was a lot of things that came from me when I heard him say that. And I've seen a lot of the other side. I've seen the conservative people crucify him for saying that because, you know, they're taking the opportunity, the political opportunity to put him down and say, oh, how could you be so insensitive? Um, but I, I want to step outside of conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. And I want to think about what that phrase brings up to you in your mind um, as a black man or woman when you hear someone say that kind of thing I have my own thoughts of what it makes me feel about the black community but I'm more curious to hear what you what you guys think and I Christine I realize Joe Biden isn't someone that you're going to have to deal with voting for or not voting for in this coming election uh, but I think the phrase still applies um, and there's still emotions and feelings that you may have from that. So I guess across the board, anyone that would like to take that go first, I'd love to hear your thoughts. To me, it just sounds like another thing that uh, white people think they know what's best for us. Even though technically I really don't like Donald Trump anyway, but just because the fact you told me that you think I know what I should do based on the color of my skin, is like the most, to me, is the most insulting thing ever. So that's why, like for me, I'm a big Kanye fan. Um, even though he says some outlandish stuff and he's super big Donald Trump supporter, which I'm not not at all. Um, it's the idea that he is able to stand on his, his own two feet and fight, forget what you're thinking I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do what, you know, is right for me. So um, that statement is super offensive to me, even though I didn't like his candidate and necessarily don't really like him either, but for him to try to use my race to try to control what he thinks is best for me doesn't seem right. You know, I didn't, I didn't hear it when it first came out, but I started hearing a lot of people talk about it in, uh, in my friend groups. And so I went and looked into it and it's just so stupid. I mean, honestly, that's my, my thoughts when I was, it's just so stupid. He's pandering. It's just dumb. The fact that he switched his language around to you ain't. It's like, yeah. so what, you think you're talking to a black audience that, you know, they talk in this type of way where, you know, you're not, you ain't. It's like, come on, how out of touch. That's how I feel. It's like, how out of touch are you? And it just exposed to me a bigger picture that this whole game of left and right, it's just a big game. And uh, I, I just, it, it just frustrates me. Uh, I have no desire to vote for, you know, <laughs> someone that tries to pander. Uh, that doesn't mean that, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to vote for Trump, you know, Man, I, I might just write my own name in. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but I'm frustrated from both ends. But hearing hearing that was just, <laughs> I just had to laugh. It's just like, really? Did that just happen? I think I'm going to leave that one with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and, and I think, Ronnie, just to kind of close the thought on that, you had said earlier the, the comment of pet or threat. And so to me, that applies in this situation where, you know, hey, I am the white powerful man and I'm going to tell you what you ought to do because I don't know that you're capable of making this decision on your own without me. I mean, I'm, I've got this head on my shoulders. Look at me. I'm, I'm already, I'm already going along with the black community by coming on and talking to Charlemagne the God. You know, I didn't go on the view or I didn't go on, on Fox news and talk to Tucker Carlson or something like that. I went on, I went on the breakfast club and like, man, look how, look how relevant I am that I'm talking to this guy. But then you make that kind of comment and, you know, I mean, there's been, he's made a lot of comments that are silly and, you know, and, and the reality is Trump has made a lot of comments that are silly and ridiculous. And you start to realize, you know, like we we're kind of talking about this, this is a deeper systemic problem um, that isn't necessarily even just about race, but in general is just across the board. Um, the idea, like you're, like you're saying, Keith, of pandering and kind of, you know, going after someone's specific vote by saying the right phrase in the right moment. Um, but I, but I think again, going outside of politics, you know, this concept of saying, you know, Hey, all of you black people out there, you're not going to know who to vote for. So I'll tell you who you ought to vote for. You know, that's, I mean, honestly, the first thing I thought when I heard that is, Oh, so you're saying, uh, that they're slaves and they have to do what you want. That, that this is the powerful white male. And the black person isn't smart enough. They can't read. They're not literate, whatever. So you're just going to tell them who they ought to vote for. And that'll be the end of it. And uh, so as a white person, it aggravated me beyond imagination. Um, so I know that that's kind of a, again, that's, there's not really a, a theology to that. Uh, there's not really a, a Christianity to that. But I think there's part of that nature of sort of what in our country we're still dealing with. And, you know, we're in this place where, you know, Ronnie and I were talking earlier this week or earlier last week where someone can say, don't worry, don't worry, I'm not racist, which then they feel gives them the license to then say things that are kind of racist because they've already established to you, hey, don't worry, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not racist, don't worry. And I'm so, not racist, but <laughs> yeah, and then that's always the phrase, it's that but. Yeah, they'll make a joke, they'll laugh, it'll be, it'll be ha ha ha, and they're expecting that you'll just kind of let it go because they've already said, I'm not racist. Don't, don't worry. Um, and I, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of that. I'm, I'm confident there's been a lot of that, that I've been guilty of in my, in my past too, of, you know, wanting to say the right thing so that I'm liked. But I think in general, then saying like, I want to be liked by black people. So I want to make sure they know I'm not racist. And, and I, so I think all that, all that stuff comes together for me and just understanding, you know, Christine, you've said it so beautifully today and Keith, you too, and even you, Ronnie, all of us have said this so well, that the body of Christ bonds us together in a way um, that if this world is not capable of bonding us together in, I want to be bonded together with you guys through the body of Christ. Um, because that's how we're connected anyway. That's how Josh and I are connected. Um, Josh and I are not connected based on the color of our skin. We're connected because we both are in allegiance with Jesus Christ. And I know that about the three of you, and that bonds me to you more than anything else. Uh, and to me, that's the beauty of the body of Christ is, you know, Paul talks about that in his letter. You know, he says, 
you know, some of us are an arm, you know, we're, we're all different parts of a body. And I think that the gifts that each one of you bring uh, to the body of Christ makes the body of Christ beautiful. Uh, like I know Ronnie is an awesome musician and uh, I've played with Ronnie on numerous occasions and um, you know, he's just one of those people that just, when it comes to music, he just gets it. And uh, it's, you know, and there's so much about him that I, that I personally say like, man, like I, I want to be like that. Like that's someone that I look to and I say, I'm, I'm proud to call this person my friend, but it's, it has to do with other things. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the color of his skin. I'm, I'm just as proud of being friends with Ronnie for who he is as I am as of being friends with Josh for who he is. Um, and so my hope is that as a, as a, as a country, as a continent, as a world, we can begin to find what that is that bonds us together as a group of people uh, across the board, no matter what it is. And that will be found through relationship, I believe. So that's yeah. just kind of my, my ending thought. Yeah, that's good, Marty. And I think, I think the, you hit the nail on the head, though, because here's the thing. We're not going to find that commonality in politics. Like mm-hmm. if you're that it's not going to happen because that means people have to give up power. And you know what happens when people give up power. It's only, I think, through the body of Christ find like though it's not going to happen with politics. That's what I'm trying to say. Like Joe Biden and Donald Trump are the same person. Like I that that's my, you know, bold statement for the day or whatever, Marty, like I can't use the words that I want to use right now because we're on a, a good Christian podcast. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't the bad Christian podcast. I can't talk like they do. Um, but like, it's crazy, man, because the same way that Donald Trump uses language to pander to white Christian people in America is Joe Biden is now doing the same thing, trying to pander to a different group. It's, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. They're the same. They're the same. They're both old, rich, white dudes who are so disconnected from society in general. Like, it's just nuts. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Jesus is king. There's some Kanye for you, Ronnie, even though he's not the first one who said that. <laughs> Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And that's where I'm going to hang my hat at the end of the day. So, yeah. but does it, does. Hey. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. I'll I was just going to say, say, I was just going to thank everybody for, for their time yeah. today. I know we've, we've gone long. Um, and listeners, thank you for, for listening to this conversation. I know uh, there were multiple times during this conversation uh, where things were said that um, just hit different, you know, like Christine, when you said, talked about your family being mixed because of slave owners, like, I was about to have to turn off my video feed. Like I can't, these kind of conversations, I feel so blessed that I can sit and have these kind of conversations with, uh, with people. And, um, it's, I wish this could happen more frequently. So thank you guys for your time. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for being honest. Um, I just, I am deeply moved and really appreciate it. So thank you guys. Yeah. And I just, I want to say thank you. Um, I think that, I think that the tendency for these types of conversations is, is to go to the negative and to look for what makes, what makes the world around us so terrible because of the things that happened to me or things that happened to you. Um, And I've really, 
I, 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 I was really appreciative of the fact that the conversation wasn't just that. It wasn't just the three of you talking about how terrible everything is around you and how terrible culture is and how terrible it is to work in a, a white church. But you, 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 were, you were talking about instead, it was this deeper conversation. And I'm not saying that because I was surprised, because I'm not surprised by that. I think it just is beautiful. Um, and it, and it, it shows that although, yes, there is that negativity to it, um, it's, it's possible to talk about those things in a way where it's positive and it, there's, it's more solution-oriented, it's more Jesus-focused than it is culture-focused. Um, and I think that we can be focused on culture. We can notice the things around us that are happening and not be happy about them and not be willing to stand for the treatment of people like Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, um, Castile, I forget his first name, um, you know, that happened a few years ago. And we, we can say we are not going to stand for those kinds of things, but at the same time, we can find the positive in who we all are. And that was beautiful to me about this conversation. So thank you guys very much. If, if, if I could add uh, this in closing, um, I appreciate the space that was created to have this conversation uh, and Josh um, your heart that I have picked up on uh, from Jesus collective from just our inboxing um, this is really important I, I think that we don't move forward in this area unless this is more than just the black problem yeah. um, if this is just the, the black problem and how do we help solve the black problem, I think we've missed it. This is our human problem that uh, what happens in the black community is connected to every other part of our community. And until it becomes our human problem, we're just going to recycle some uh, old broken solutions and try to frame them in a fresh new context. Uh, and so I, I, I appreciate the conversation and I just encourage you all to continue creating space for this because it's, it's really helpful. Yeah, thank you, Keith, I appreciate it. Definitely want to second that, Keith. Uh, I really appreciate Josh, um, just your heart in this. It's been evident throughout our time together. And uh, yeah, it's just powerful and, and, and you're in a particular place of strategically placed as God would have you uh, to navigate this space and to, to help bring healing and wholeness because that's where we're headed, right? Mm. So I'm really appreciative for you both uh, Josh and Marty. And one last thing I wanted to say as we've talked about uh, all of this, I wanted to say that in, in my context, and I'm sure it's the same in both uh, Keith and, and, uh, and Ronnie's, that we love our people. Mm. And I want to just reemphasize that, that uh, it is an act of love and um, and of mutual a mutual love that that's existing in in our in our church context, and I'm really excited to be a part of that and to be part of the love of God that's there and that is changing things as a result. And yeah, our, our people are not white people to me; they are people of God, and mm. I am loving them. I am yeah. totally loving them and wanting to hear their stories as much, you know, as, as you've been one in inviting us to share our stories today. 
I want to hear their stories and get to know them because then they're seen and they're heard and they're important. And, mm. and it's in that mutual uh, place that we find real depth and love. And, and like Keith was saying, you know, going deeper. I want to hear their stories. I need to hear their stories mm. and to open that space, that little, that we can go deeper. So, yeah. Mm. Uh. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, and nice to meet you, Josh, Christine, and uh, Keith. It was a, a wonderful talk, and I'm so glad that uh, people are talking about this. You know, a lot of people want to try to silence these conversations and not uh, um, address these issues that have been just like welling up in the church for such a long time. And um, I'm just so encouraged that people are talking about this. And and furthermore, I want to, I want to uh, encourage you, Josh and Marty, for doing this podcast. It's great. And I listened to the one you guys did a few weeks ago with Drew. And that was great as well. So you guys are putting out some great information and I'll continue to keep sharing it to try to get it out to as many people as possible. But for everybody listening, like uh, I I'm 27 years old now and I've had this conversation, this same kind of conversation countless times, but we have to go past just talking. We got to start doing some stuff to actually, I'm, I'm, I'm really tired of having it. You know I mean? I'm only 27 and I had this conversation in the same amount of time. You know, so we really got to start actually taking some action and fixing these things as opposed to just talking about them. Yeah, most definitely. Well, thank you guys again so much um, for this conversation. And hopefully, I mean, Marty and I are trying to gear up so we can have those kind of uh, moving forward, what can we do conversations. Um, we're trying to get some of those things on the dock. And I know Drew has a new book coming out called Who Will Be a Witness, uh, which is kind of uh, the follow-up almost to his, uh, this one that he did, uh, Trouble I've Seen. And so we're, he's already said like, hey, I want to come chat with you guys again. So we'll have Drew on and, and try to keep moving this conversation forward. So thank you guys so much. And uh, listeners, as always, go Caps. See if I can get this right. Kings, Maple Leafs, Blackhawks, but not for Marty, only for Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to hear Josh say go Blackhawks. So. No, I only, oh, I didn't say it for you, Marty. That was just for Ronnie. <laughs> That's my hospitality. That's my, my <laughs> radical hospitality. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you. Peace. Uh -huh.